gonna dive into um, Exodus, we'll continue moving. So last week was the intro and you get the videos and you get everything else and this, this week you get three slides. So I just want you to know, scaling back, I hope I didn't set the expectation too high that I'd have drawings, videos, moving parts, uh, interpretive dance, none of that's gonna happen. We are just diving in now, uh, looking at Exodus. <coughs> and as you, you remember the overall view, and just keep in mind, Exodus splits in half, right? So you have your, your first 18, 19 chapters are, are getting you out of Egypt, journeying through the wilderness. There's plenty that happens. There's lots of complaining. There's lots of anger, turn back, change, uh, back and forth. We're about to get into a, an intense amount of back and forth. I think it's one of the most uh, coming up, not this week, but I find it so awkward for Moses when he goes and says something to Pharaoh and Pharaoh makes it worse for the people and then the people come to Moses and like, thanks for nothing kind of idea. I always think, how horribly awkward was that for Moses at that time when you try to empathize with a character, but you watch Pharaoh changing his mind. You see the people get angry and come back and then you see these plagues get poured out. And so we'll walk through all of that uh, step by step looking at this and it's fascinating to watch everything unfold. And then you know for the, the last half of the book, is the covenant given, and it's the law that's unfolding. And actually, the next book, Leviticus, uh, is going to unfold the law in detail, all of it taking place right there um, at Mount Sinai. So we're going to spend half of the book is going to be getting this covenant and getting blueprints for a tabernacle, which will be God's presence with them, which again, keep this in mind, you see God's constant effort to be with his people, to be in their presence. And we saw that in Genesis. God was the God of second chances and third chances. Always a new beginning, always a failure on our part. And then another new beginning. We see God's grace and mercy. And so we're going to walk through this redemptive story and we're going to watch God working and being among his people. But I call this one the situation because it is setting up again or it's bringing us back into the story that closed out in Genesis. Now, we end Genesis with Joseph's death, his embalming, and really awaiting his final burial spot. So they say that, that Joseph dies, he gets embalmed, and he gets put into a coffin. You don't have a burial ceremony because he wanted a member to take his bones with him per his request back to the promised land. Well, Exodus picks the story up, not necessarily there, but actually goes back to Genesis 46 to kind of tie us into the situation at hand. And if you were wondering, we're going to be in the book of Exodus, so you can turn there in your Bible towards the beginning. So it's one of the easier ones to find. I can do this one on a sword drill. Genesis and Revelation are the easiest. Usually Psalms is pretty easy because you go to the middle. And after that, most kids beat me to the sword drill uh, thing. Even if I have one of the thumb tabs here, it's like it almost confuses me. So I don't do the thumb tabs anymore. I just take forever to find my spot in the Bible. You think I'd know it by now, but I don't. So I go through. So it's fun for kids to beat me on that one. And I'm not even faking. I'm not, you know, tampering or anything. They're beating me without me doing anything to help them out. Um, but we're diving into Exodus and we're going to get into this Genesis 46. And it, it talks that way. So as we kind of work our way to the situation at hand, it's Genesis 46. This is Jacob moving his family into Egypt. And, and you'll see Jacob actually... Uh, if you remember from the Genesis account, as he comes in, he gets to, I think, Bethel, and he again calls on God to see if this is the right move, and you see that it is. And then they grab where Jacob comes in and coming in to live in Egypt, and then it recounts their growth as a people into a great multitude. So in a very short way, he says, okay, there's about 70. If you read in Acts, they say 75. It depends who is counting and which people they're counting. They're not counting their servants. They're not counting their wives. They're counting the kids and the grandkids. And so uh, some of the counts include Ephraim and Manasseh's kids because that gets counted in the mix. So that's why Acts is a little bit higher. But what you see is in the hundreds and what you're going to have ultimately is this multitude of people and it recounts their growth as people. And, and notice the language, and we'll read it, is definitely like Genesis, right? Be fruitful and multiply. You're going to see these references to Israel. And so you're watching Israel grow in the way that God wants them to. And, and in a way, it's almost miraculous because uh, some of the, the verbiage you'll see about the Egyptians being really bothered by the growth of the Israelites, it's not just that they were growing but they are growing at a speed that was obviously different than the Egyptians' normal rate 
of reproduction. And so I'm not saying it was miraculous, but I, there is a hint that they were growing faster than the Egyptians and they're just a little boggled. And actually some of the verbs that are used almost disgusted by the Israelites and their growth. And so you're seeing this, this massive, speedy growth as a nation. Uh, before we dive in, I wanted to give um, some background to dates. So everyone, if you read a commentator, you're going to read different dates. I'm going to start up front. Uh, Tom and I hold different dates. He's really good. His date is actually one of the conservative dates. I think he did a brilliant job, wrote a book on it. Uh, I have a copy of that book. Um, so I'm going to give you two dates, and I'm going to explain the thinking behind the dates. And one of the conclusions I want you to get, so I give dates because I like dates and history and understanding it. Um, there's a lot of validity to the 1260, 1220 date. I think there's validity in the 1446, which is where I land. Both have arguments archaeologically. I want you to capture this in your mind, though. You don't have to get the date perfectly right. Uh, one, Egyptians didn't record their history with the idea of saying that this pharaoh was born on such and such date. They recorded their history in, I conquered these people in this speedy way, in this manner. And so their history is recounted more by event and a lot less by chronological. And because we think in a certain Western way, right? Two, it doesn't change the story at all. It doesn't change the validity of the story at all. These events in Exodus happened. Um, I want you to hopefully see that the fact that we don't know the Pharaoh tells a lot about what's important in the story. Um, I'm going to mention this, so I'm going to give it away ahead of time. Um, I love the fact that in verse 15, it is the king of Egypt, right? The ruler of the known world, which really there's other kingdoms pressing down uh, from the north as well. But this is a huge kingdom. And how do they refer to him? King of Egypt. But then when it talks about midwives, what does it say about the midwives? The name of the one was Shifra and the name of the other Pua. And that's not the only two midwives for a million people. It's referencing those as representing the collective whole or as representing the leadership of the midwives. But to what we would consider nondescript people given a name, but the king of Egypt is not even named at all. Don't lose sight of that. They do something unique, but the midwives feared God. What did the king of Egypt fear? No one. He ultimately hates the consequences that comes from rejecting God, but he doesn't fear God, and he actually changes his mind afterwards. Don't miss who is named and who is not named when it comes to Scripture. It doesn't make it glaringly important one way or the other, but when you're in chapter 1 of Exodus and they don't bother telling you the name of the Pharaoh, and by the way, Moses would have known the name of the Pharaoh because he would have grown up in that household and have been around those names. It would have been common knowledge, but it's not listed. The Holy Spirit did not want Moses to record that, but did want to record these names. Just, I say that before I dive into the dates because it doesn't change the validity of the story, and actually it, it's part of not knowing that lets us know what is important, and you realize something, Egypt is not the one we're talking about here. We're talking about God, and we're talking about how he redeems his people, which is Israel. All right, all that to say, amongst conservative scholars, when Israel is leaving Egypt, there seems to be two main dates that come up. I use the word conservative scholars. Those are people who would approach scripture as we believe is biblically supposed to be approached, that it's the inerrant, authoritative word of God. Among people like that, there seems to be a discussion that centers either around 1446 B.C. or 1260, 1220-esque, and arguments go both ways. Not to sound like a guy that's on the fence, but I've read arguments from both ways, and I I can honestly say there's some really good validity uh, to both arguments. The reason I want to present both of them is, one, as we dive into Exodus, I'm hoping you can see that either one works as you unfold the Exodus story. I give you my opinion, but I I also try to be careful that when something is not dogmatically presented in Scripture, it doesn't tell us the exact date in that way, that I want to leave room for you to study, read, because again, this is know your Bible. This is so you can go back and read it and understand it and grapple with it. Um, The biblical account does not describe or name the Pharaoh, nor did ancient history concern themselves with exact dating of their current events. 
Actually, pharaohs didn't care if their children knew what date something happened. They only cared about being known forever for what they did. And so Tutmos III is a campaigner, and I lean towards Tutmos III being the pharaoh for the Exodus, but he was a massive campaigner, and he captured Megiddo, and they call it a thousand towns because he conquered a lot of kings there. All they care about is talking about what they've done and that they conquered people. Uh, they don't tie in dating and time. Uh, they love to picture themselves in conquest and victories. But I do want to dive into one of the reasons I go um, with the date I have or the starting point is 1 Kings 6.1. So if you turn there, but I'm going to explain this because it, it has two ways of looking at it and want to share that with you. And again, and this is where I'm struggling to find 1 Kings. There you go. <laughs> 1 Kings chapter, sorry, chapter 6. Verse 1, <coughs> this is surrounding the construction of the temple. And this is what it says. And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month Ziph, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. So one dating methodology is to take that 480 years from the date of Solomon's reign, which is roughly 971-ish, give or take two or three years. So doing some math gives us a date of around 445 to 447 BC for the Exodus. So that's why I'm a 446, interpreting the years as full years there. Now, you say, Kenny, why in the world do some conservative scholars then say it's 1260 or 1220? Why are they falling there? Well, in Biblical genealogies, there are times when generations are listed. And so one of the interpretations that people have for those dates is they look at the 480 as representing 12 generations, which didn't last at the same length. And so they divided up about 40 years, and that lands them in the 13th century, which is 1260. Uh, these aren't people just saying, I really want a different date. This is a legit, they've seen how the scriptures walks through generations, they see how these years and the way it's worded in Hebrew, it's not as, it's, it seems extremely straightforward to us because we give a number and it's a number. It's not as straightforward in Hebrew. So I just wanted to be fair. That's how people would look at 1 Kings 6, 1 and still come to a different conclusion. Let me give you some of the other arguments around 1260 that have some good validity. Uh, some of them are measuring some of the archaeological finds. Let's say, for instance, it says in Exodus that they built Pithom and Ramesses. Well, Ramesses II was around the 13th century. And so if he named the city after himself, and that was the, um, uh, the, the pharaoh that actually built that with the Israelites, then it's hard for that city to be built, quote unquote, hundreds of years before he's on the scene. I'm going to do the flip side of that. The word Ramesses is used in the, before that as well. And so there's, again, I just want you to show two sides of the argument. I'm not trying to make it confusing. I just want you to see this. Um, <clears throat> there are some archaeological things that take place in Canaan that as you dig them up, that seem to, to lean towards a later date. When I say later, it seems back or right with BC. Later is 1260, early is 1446. Some archaeology in Canaan, points, it seems to point to an earlier or later date for Exodus. On the flip side, Jericho was uninhabited. It looks like from archaeology at that later date, and so people push that as pointing to 1446. Again, I'm going to say afterwards, Tom, you can articulate this probably to the nth degree, and he can tell you how crazy Kenny is, and I say that Tom is crazy as can be. Now, uh, you think I'm crazy. He, now, he's, he's done an amazing work. I appreciate the discussion. I want you to see both sides of this. Um, let me give you an illustration. So I'm reading a conservative scholar out of England, and he's 1446. I'm about to recommend a one-volume one commentary, Wycliffe Bible Translators, and they see it as 1260. So two very conservative scholars there. Uh, I'm reading A History of Israel by Walter Kaiser. Uh, it's a really thick book. If you like history, it's fascinating. If you don't like history, extremely boring. Um, but I like history, so it's fascinating to me. He's 1446, working from a book by Albright who says 1260. So conservative scholars who've done a lot of work, who love Israel, who, who see them as God's presence, are falling on two sides of the argument. And I just want you to see that there's two sides. I hold the earlier date for this reason. 
the king's position, I interpret that data and those, those words as years, just from how they articulate in that, that book from my standpoint. And then obviously the other archeological data that points to uh, it's Jericho and the overtaking of Jericho. And I think there's an exclamation on the other side. So I lean towards 1446 BC, and I believe it's Tutmos III, who is the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Um, interestingly enough, there's people who hold a 1446 BC date who don't hold Tutmos III. They think it's the next one that is part of the Exodus. So I'm just, it's hard to date these, these pharaohs and their reigns a little bit. I don't say that to throw out other scholarship. And ultimately, again, the date alters nothing about the weight of Exodus. And in some ways, it actually tells us what is important. To the Israelite mind, you say, what, what did an Israelite in Jesus' day think of this? This date is not important to them because it's the story of God's redemption that carries the weight. And so God and his redemptive plan are what matters. What Pharaoh is inconsequential? Do you know the verse, whose heart does God have in his hand? The king's. And what does that imply? Every king from every era is under the control of God. So when we look at government, and it may not be doing what we think it should be doing, but we never have to wonder that God is out of control. Now, as you dive in to Exodus and you start, I want you to throw yourself in the mindset of the Israelite people and wonder to yourself after slavery year after year and how brutal it is, would you ever start wondering if God's in control? And they had to trust God. I actually want you to realize that these midwives feared God, not in liberation, but in slavery. And so they feared God, even though that God, if you want to throw accusations, hadn't done what they had hoped he had done yet, but they still feared him more than the guy who seems to have all the control of the life. And by the way, I say guy, but one of the stepmoms ruled as a pharaoh with her stepson, and he wasn't wanting that, but she, she was in control. Had shit put, I think. Yeah, you go. She's, she's an interesting lady, all right? To the point of putting on the pharaoh beard, sending off husband and stepson to war, and she would rule the empire. So it's kind of an interesting thing. I'll give a little bit of information about that. Um, I'm going to go to the first slide here, which is a map. So I want you to place yourself, and you'll understand a little bit of the history as I give it. So I'm going to give you, here are my thoughts. I think the Exodus occurs under Thutmose the third around 1446 BC. I see validity in the argument. I use the word validity as some think to the oppression of Israel, beginning with the Hyksos people, which are an Asiatic or Semitic people who kept wandering into Egypt. So let me explain what happens. We think of Egypt running and all the dynasties as being Egyptian. I think the 13th to the 16th or the 14th to the 17th, something like their dynasties. Well, people from up here, Semitic people, so like the Hebrews, wandered down. If you remember, what did, what did Abraham do? When he had a drought, he came down into Egypt, right? So they keep wandering into Egypt. And at some point, these Hyksos people, Asiatics or Semitic people, they take over lower Egypt. Now this always, I have to see a map to do it because when I look at a map, where do you think is up and what's down for you? Up and down, right? So when I think of upper Egypt, I always think the reverse. This is lower Egypt because it flows down to the Mediterranean Sea. And you know this one, gosh, and that's where, where? Where did Joseph settle his? There, that, this is the fertile land. Well, the high coast people come in and they take over and they run an empire here. Upper Egypt... And in this area, Thebes, they still have an Egyptian. This is a purebred Egyptian kingdom. But when you read history, you're going to read about them or correlates. That's where dates get confusing. Well, through, let's say, the 1740 BC, there's a possibility that these high coast people take the Israelites and put them into forced labor. 1540, Amros comes up and actually conquers or kicks out the high coast people. And what you have 
is he doesn't kick out the Israelites. And so some people think that because the Israelites were already slaves here, that he just keeps them slaves and that's it. Another interpretation, and it goes both ways, is the Hyco's people and the Israelites got along just fine. And then these Hyco's people are kicked out. And at this point in time, Amros takes over 1540 BC and enslaves Israel at this time because they're foreigners and he wants a purebred empire because these are purebred Egyptians and these are not Egyptians. Now the Egyptians that lived here were perfectly fine with the ruler that was there, but they only kick out those who aren't Egyptian. The Egyptians get to stay. And so there's two sides to that and it's Amos and that has a lot to do with Moses's name. It can be Moses that he's drawn out. It also can be a shortened version of Themos or Amos that his daughter called it. Um, what's interesting is you watch them be either be enslaved or become enslaved under a rejuvenated kingdom that no longer is mixed with Asiatic or Semitic blood, but is now purely Egyptian. And they move their capital up and you see the things change. And so now you have the 18th dynasty coming on and you have a string of kings and you watch them respond to this foreigner. <clears throat> a lot of war takes place during this time. So these guys all campaign up north and go beat people up and come back. That's what kings did. Go fight, come home. Go fight, come home. They're worried that someone coming back down would get these people to help fight them. So that's why they use the excuse, let's enslave them and then go on from there. We can keep them oppressed. Now notice though, when Joseph placed his kindred, he placed them at the best point to what? Leave Egypt and go back to Canaan. He didn't put them here. He put them here so that they would leave. And so you're going to find Egypt, the lower Egypt, the Delta region, great for agriculture, great for them to grow and multiply, but also closest for them to get out of there. By the way, the cities they build are up in this area here and here, and different maps will tell you. There, there is a lot of argument about which name stands for what, and so it's back and forth. But there, one is about 25 miles off of the coast, was the capital of the Heist Coast, and they build a storage city. And then I think Pithom is down here, and it's another city that's built. Those are, those are storage cities for those pharaohs, and they're really launching points for war. So they're stockpiling agriculture and launching forward. That's my take on it. If you look at Amos, if you look at the high coast getting along with Israel, then the new king of verse 8 is Amos. Amos is a new king that doesn't recognize Joseph and walks away, or... The High Coast people who are not Egyptian don't recognize Joseph and enslave Israel. Either way, Israel is enslaved by somebody who doesn't recognize or see the significance or acknowledge the significance of Joseph. Now, the important thing again is that none of who did what changes the story that God wanted us to see, and that's him taking his people out of an impossible situation and redeeming them. And that's what he wants us to see in his story. Now I'm going to dive all the way back to the start of Exodus, going one through seven. I can butcher names like anyone else. David, I just let you butcher him in Sunday school, but I don't feel like that's fair every time to pick on him to read it. So look at one through seven. Now these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man in his household came with Jacob. Genesis 46 we're coming into Egypt, so he's tying it together. It's the now, if you look in Hebrew, I think it's and actually, right? It starts with the word and in Hebrew, so it's just an and. It's a continuation, and the story keeps going. Exodus is a Greek name, <coughs> I think, in, in, um, which means way out, but they just typically carry off with the first words, and now. It just The story keeps going, basically. So to the Jewish mind, there's no break. It just moves quickly through. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The order is interesting because he lists it um, from Leah, and then you get Benjamin who's coming in, and then you have the, um, 
kids, the ones that are born at different dates. It's actually more of a chronological list, minus Benjamin being tucked up there. And all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were 70 souls, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died and all his brethren and all that generation. So what is he saying? We're moving on. This is a massive sweep in time. So this is, this is let's, let's blaze through some years. And that's, what, that's what's happening right now. And it goes on, And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceedingly mighty. And the land was filled with them. Now, how many different ways can you say there's a lot of them? <laughs> they were fruitful. They waxed many. The land was overflowing with these people. They're everywhere. And don't miss that. That is... That is what's going to be on the mind of Egypt as we dive in. But all that vernacular is reminiscent of God's command to fill the earth at creation, right? It could be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, filled with them. The land's filled with them. They're exceedingly mighty. They're multiplied. They're increasing abundantly. They're everywhere. They seem to be taking over, right? That's the mindset that, that is being communicated here. And what happens is, is the nation of Egypt is going to exemplify who they are and they're anti the nation of Israel. And, and I want you to see that enmity, uh, Satan's seed against God's seed and the epic battle is coming and Pharaoh and Egypt is representing evil. And I don't do that to say Egyptians are evil. I'm saying in this story, they're representing evil and God is going to come battle for his people. And that's what we unfold with. And what I call is, as we move from this multiplication story, we move as the situation unfolds to the weight of oppression. And you can always go back to these maps. If you're ever interested in looking at maps, books, etc., I have them in my office. You're welcome to look at them there. I used to loan my books out, but no one returns them. So you can look at them here. And then if you really like it, you take a picture and you can order on Amazon. So you're welcome to look at my books, always on site. The weight of oppression and the winds of change. And we're going to see the situation shifting for them. If you look at chapter one, and I thought, how do I break this apart? Um, but I'm just going to read eight through 22. We're going to read through Exodus as we 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 fight through it. Sometimes I'll tell the story, but oftentimes I try to read as much as I can. I say that in Sunday school as well. Uh, I like to read scripture. I want you to hear the word of God. I want you to, to chew on that and grab those words. That's what you need to remember. But I want you to see something as I read. There's about two to three phases of oppression. So if you look, when I read uh, verse 11, you're going to see it. And then 13 and 14, you're going to see the intensity ramp up in the sense of how uh, the words they use to describe how they're treating Israel. And then obviously 15 and 16 and 22, we change what we're doing from just oppressive to murder. So I'm going to read through this uh, now. And I just want you to kind of follow along, kind of seeing how it unfolds. Hear it, look at it in your Bible, mark it. I think it's helpful. So now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. Again, could be the high coast people who came in and took over and set up their own kingdom. And that means they're oppressed for 300 plus years. Or it could be Amos who conquers them and he's the new king. He says, I don't care about Joseph. Now, he was not unaware of Joseph. He didn't care that Joseph had done what he did for, for Egypt. Okay, so there's your new king. Do recognize it's a juxtaposition. Something has changed internationally. There's a new king. There's a turnover. There is turmoil. All you have to do is look at America, which is supposed to have an election go without a hitch, right? And seems like that doesn't work out for us anymore. So get the idea. Take what we see happening in the last eight years, multiply that by a million, and that's what it feels like in the ancient world when somebody else takes over. So it is lots of unrest. So we go here and he said, And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. In other words, he is being a politician. He's painting a picture about Israel that's never happened before. If nothing else, they haven't, they've already proven they're not going to be war people in this sense. They're agricultural people. They haven't taken up arms. He's politically 
building a narrative. We've seen this, right? So imagine he's on social media and he's got Facebook doing what he wants, Twitter doing what he wants, and he's sending it out to the news organizations and he's telling his people, let's oppress these people. We need to get these people locked down because they could be a problem. They've never been, but they could be. And so that's what he's building to. Therefore, going on, they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Pithom and Ramesses. So he says, let's enslave them. Now we put over them union bosses, however you want to look at this, that are cracking the whip. So it breaks down there, my nomad illustration does. And they're going to they're gonna segment over the people and say, we're going to make them do a burden. Okay. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were grieved because of the children of Israel. <coughs> you ever heard a political lie backfire on somebody? So Pharaoh says to the Egyptians, these people are growing. We should make them work for us, and then they'll stop growing. I created the problem, and I made a fake solution. And then what happened? The people multiplied. Were the people multiplying ever a problem? No. Pharaoh has created a problem, and now he's created what amongst his people? Fear. Because he told them that multiplying Israel is something to fear, and so he's manipulated his people. Now, if, if you look at this from the standpoint of politics, he now has a real problem in the perception that his people have about Israel. And you see the change that's taking place on how Egyptians look at Israelites? What once was a fine relationship, once worked, now has become they're risky, and now they're still multiplying, and now we fear them. And what do you do when you're in fear? Who here makes the best decisions when they're afraid? If you have children, you know what fear does, right? The most irrational things in the world happen because of fear. Sometimes fear gives you adrenaline. That's neat. Fear usually just makes you really ridiculous, right? And you're crazy, and there's things. Uh, there's times when my, my younger kids, they ask questions, and I'm like, you, you, you don't need to be afraid of that. Just where, how did you come up with that to be afraid of? Like, this, this, your blanket is not going to turn into a flesh-eating monster. It's fine. But if you want, we can throw this one away and put a new one on you if that'll work. Or is it all blankets? I don't know where you're going with this, but it's late, and I don't want to deal with this, right? That's, fear does weird things to you and to other people. So now these Egyptians fear. And so what happens is, and the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor or with weight or to increase the burden. So there is an intensifying effect here. And they made their lives what? Bitter. So now not only are you enslaved, now we're going to make your life miserable. So they made their life bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. And I want you to note that whenever we think of Israel enslaved, what do we think they're doing? Making bricks. But they actually were digging canals and tanning all the agriculture. So from an Egyptian standpoint, remember how elite they were? When, when, when Joseph's family came in, he said he told his parents or his dad and his brothers, tell them that you are shepherds because they despise people who do that. It's like uh, elites saying, you know, I don't build anything, but they love to live in houses, you know, the, that kind of mentality. And so the Egyptians, you can see them getting more uppity, right? We don't handle the fields, but that's for those people to do. We're not going to build the bricks. We'll let them do that. You see how they're putting other work off. And so they've made their life bitter and it's in all manner of service in the field and beyond all their service, wherein they made them serve was with rigor. You're going to serve me, and I'm going to make it hard work. I'm not going to be, hey, work a 40-hour week. Oh, it's sunny outside. Why don't you get a drink of water? It's let's make this miserable. That is the ramp up, okay? So slavery, and now let's make it miserable slavery, which it's kind of miserable being slavery, but let's just be as ugly as we can about it. And it doesn't work, right? It doesn't stop things. And so what we see from 8 through 14, I put brutal slavery. Here are some takeaways. Egypt ignored what had been done. Joseph had saved Egypt through God working through Joseph. Egypt was saved. And Egyptians said, we don't care. 
It doesn't matter to us anymore. God doesn't matter. Joseph doesn't matter. You don't matter. It's all about us. Number two, Egypt ignored what was right. So Pharaoh used fear to justify his agenda, and then the people bought into the fear and justified the evil. What I want you to see is the culpability of all the Egyptians, not just Pharaoh. Because when we get to the plagues, you're going to see a stubborn leader not bending. You're going to see the people saying, let's bend. And then we're going to see a Passover punishment that attacks everyone in the nation. And part of us is going to say, why didn't they just take out Pharaoh's son? Why did all these other people have to suffer? And I want you to see in Exodus 1 that the whole nation of Egypt collectively is participating in the oppression of God's people. The weight of oppression is not just leadership. It has come down into the populace of Egypt. We're going to see that even more as we move forward. Now, (coughs) it gets constantly worse, right? The situation for Israel turns from the best land and revered status to severe work on the Egyptian lands, building their cities and monuments. When they still multiply, the Egyptians buckle down to make it even worse. And then that's not enough. The drive to crush God's people, the striving between the righteous one and the power of evil as represented by Pharaoh and the Egyptians is only going to intensify. So we dive into verse 15, and I call this a diabolical plan is hatched by Pharaoh. Let me go ahead and read 15. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shifra, and the name of the other Pua. And he said, When ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools. And by the way, if you look up a picture, they gave birth by standing on two rocks, one midwife on the front, the other midwife behind catching the baby. And so you see how you get a little idea of how they gave birth, which would be standing up. It says, if it be a son, then you shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. 17. But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. And I want us to see a little bit what's happening. He went from brutal slavery to now we see the Pharaoh engaging in brutal murder. Now, if you can't work someone to death, what's the next way to do it? Genocide, right? (coughs) Why the men and not the women? This is his plan, just to show how awful he is. Let's murder the baby boys. So within a generation, there's no Hebrew male to marry a Hebrew woman. The Hebrew women will be slave wives to Egyptians. And within two generations, what do you have? Egyptians. Egyptians. You can treat them however you want. They're slave wives. Every one of these pharaohs had multiple wives. You'll see that and who takes over what and where. Um, it's, a, it's a convoluted mess. We'll talk about that later. But, um, so what he's doing is saying, I want to eradicate God's people. Genesis 6, you see Satan trying to eradicate the seed. Where is the seed of the Messiah going through? What people? Jewish people. And so if you kill all the males and you eradicate the Jewish race, you're effectively what? Who's the ultimate target? Pharaoh may not have known this. Christ, the Messiah. This is still, that's why I say diabolical plan. You see a plan whose seminal idea has to come from Satan. That that is driven. So the Egyptians now are engaging in not just oppressing God's people, but wiping them off the map. We're going to get rid of them. The initial plan to murder them is not with the people of Egypt. The initial plan is just, hey, I'm Pharaoh, you're midwives, kill baby boys, and we'll be good to go. They don't. They feared God and did not do as the king said. And so the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, why have you done this thing and have saved the men children alive? And the midwives said unto Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them, which is a bit of a lie, right? You're going to see a lie here. You're going to see a lie with Rahab. There's a couple times the lies happen. God's going to bless these people, not necessarily for their deceit, but he blesses them for the fact that they feared him and acted on the behalf of his people. Therefore, it says, God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. So their reason to Pharaoh appeased him. 
Now remember, the Egyptians looked at the Israelite people and were a bit disgusted. They didn't understand how these uneducated, uncouth farmers keep having these healthy families and healthy... So their perception of Israelites were that they were capable of having babies without midwives, but the Egyptian women were much more delicate, fragile, uppity. And so their whole perception of Israel helped them buy the story that the midwives gave, and so they did what was right. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that he made them houses. In other words, he blessed their families. Their names are Semitic, by the way. Some people thought maybe they're Egyptian midwives who are over Hebrew midwives. Their names are not Egyptian. Their names are definitely Hebrew. That doesn't mean they weren't Egyptians because they could have left with Israel when they left and changed their name, that that can happen. But the leaning is that they were in charge of the midwives. And I want you to recognize what they did because we, 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 we simplify everything because we see the pictures and the stories and we kind of go back in ancient times. Pharaoh is a god to the people. You worship him, he's supposed to live forever, blah, 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 blah. And he says to you to kill somebody, then you should what? If you're an obedient subject in this sense, he's expecting you to kill them. And it's not questioned obedience. It's just, he's God. You, you just obey what God... So um, I, I do want you to recognize who these women are. And what you're going to see at the beginning is women actually standing up against what's going on. They stood up, but their reason for it wasn't just that we will unite and move forward. Their reason was what? They what? Feared God. When we live in a world where we willy-nilly kill babies as well, right? For the sake of what? Convenience. My rights. You name it. You read this story, and I would love to have Shifra and Pua right here and stand in front of a crowd that thinks abortion's okay and have them tell you why rights don't matter and all this garbage that you're talking about matter. They did something because they fear God, because God sets life, and they're not going to go against God, and they're going to risk everything to do that. So plan A, covert murder of all male babies. I think this happens around the time of... Amos's son, which is a menophet, or I might mispronounce it, um, the first. And actually, it's really interesting because that's 1526 is when he takes over. And roughly when Moses is born is 1526. But Aaron's free to roam around. He doesn't need to get killed. He's three years older. So there's a change. And it makes sense that this transition happens when Moses is born, which is a transition of leadership. And so you see a son of a pharaoh who started this whole oppressive thing saying, I got to get rid of these Israelites because people get nervous. And he comes up with plan A, which is a covert style plan to have the midwives just kill the male babies and within 80 years we'll be good to go. Well, it doesn't work. And so Pharaoh changes his plan. Look at verse 22. And I do want you to see how the culpability is then back on Egypt again. So, and Pharaoh charged all his people saying, every son that is born, and it's in different, the Talmud and the Septuagint, they're going to add of the Hebrews. I don't think you have to add it. I think Egyptians knew that he wasn't telling them to kill their own kids. So, and Pharaoh charged all his people saying, every son that is born you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. <coughs> And that verse right there is a change of plan. It's plan B. Now the whole nation of Egypt can participate in the eradication of Israel. Before, it was to be a killing by the midwives when the baby is born. Now, we're asking all of Egyptians to participate in the murder of God's people. Why? So there is no God's people anyway. Now, you went from free to enslaved to brutally enslaved, to having your midwives told to kill your babies, to now everyone that's not you around you, the weight of oppression, is now charged with taking your baby. By the way, throwing them in the Nile is a very normal way to get rid of your kid at that time. I use that quotes because there's no normal way to get rid of kids, but it, 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 was, a, it was a functional solution to the problem. 
with a Nile running right through it, it, it worked, right? A lot of towns built. So this, this made sense to do, but I want you to realize he's tasked his people, and I want you to see what's happening. The situation is as bad as it gets, right? Could you think of a worse situation? What's, what's the only other thing he could do? Kill all the babies and then just kill everyone all at once, right? So he's killing as much as he can without a massive overthrow, without a massive fight back, right? If you send the armies to murder every Israelite, Israelite, Israelite's going to fight back, right? So we're seeing how much we can murder without them pushing back, which is going to drive us forward in this horrific landscape. But tucked in chapter 1, we see women keeping the faith despite the demands of an oppressive society and being rewarded for it because no king, no matter how powerful, can ever exceed God's power. <coughs> There's an application there. These are two people with zero power at all who look at the most powerful person that they can know in their life. They have no idea about the campaigns going up north. And they literally say, basically, I'm going to obey God and not man. And then I have a question for us. How easy does culture sway you? I want you to put that in perspective. Two women who were told to murder babies by the leading authority and not through a law that trickled down on the internet, but face to face, you kill babies, right? You got it? Kill the babies. Make it happen. You're not killing the babies. Why aren't you doing that? Now they come up with a story. We're going to give them that out, quote unquote, there. God is blessing them. But their reason for not doing it was not just defiance. They feared God more than mankind, humankind. And again, do you fear God, respect God, reverence God more than you reverence your wallet, your luxuries, your car, your house, your rights, your whatever? They did. And that's the charge you're seeing because God is saying, fear me. And that's not a trembling. That's a reverential awe that we're supposed to feel over the others. And I've talked myself all the way to five minutes. We'll see how fast I can do chapter two. How about that? We'll finish it up next week if I have to. I put the winds of change because things are changing. I'm not saying it's a wind, not trying to be overly frou-frou, just the winds of change. Things are happening. That's chapter two. And I want us to see something in chapter two, and I'm going to move quickly through it. Um, Israel needs help, but who in the world could possibly raise up to help them? Who in the world could ever solve this problem? How could God orchestrate this? And then when you're thinking that in the middle of a murderous edict, a woman has a baby and she disobeys that edict. And that's Exodus 2.1. And there went a man of the house of Levi and took to wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him, that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. Now, right away, you think it's the firstborn. It's not because there's Miriam and there's Aaron and there's other children. <coughs> and they, there's no indication that these are the dad's children of another marriage, anything like that. It just, the story centers in on Moses. And so after this edict is passed, she has a baby that she's supposed to kill and she hides him. Why do you have to hide a baby? Not just from the guards. Who does she have to hide the baby from? Egyptians. Everyone. And so for a while there, a toddler can cry and a baby can cry. But at some point, this baby's been born since the murder edict's been out. And so any Egyptian can grab your baby and in the water it goes. Right? And then so what you watch unfold is you have to know this child is special. If you're reading a story, if it's not scripture, didn't know the story, you know if you go through the first chapter of a book and then it talks about a baby being born, that they're going to do something with that baby, right? So the story centering in, a deliverer is born. And I want you to realize you're going to have a thinking mother here, a mother who's thinking out of the box. Because if you look from three to 10, what does she do? After three months, what does she end up doing? We know the story, so I'll let you recount it a little bit with me. She makes a what? basket. She coats it in. She kind of obeys the edict because she puts him in the water. That would be a kid reasoning there, right? Well, I put him in the water. I didn't know you wanted me to put him in the water and on the water. I could see my kids doing this right now. Yes. Thank you for all the 
Great reasoning, right? And she, she places this child in, in an area she knows that Pharaoh's daughter washes and sets Miriam apart. So she has a plan in place. She's not saying, man, it's getting too risky. I can't handle anymore. She knows that she's pushed the limits of what she can do. And she knows that there's a chance that there's sympathy or something extended this child. When it says goodly, it meant beautiful, handsome. This was a healthy, obviously good-looking kid that set in. It's not just because he's good-looking that she's saving him. It just, you do know that there was a physical appeal to this child. So she sets the baby out there, and what you have is the royalty does find the baby. Miriam, of course, comes in, and she says, you want me to find someone to take care of the baby? She's far enough away. I doubt Pharaoh's daughter is so dumb as to not pick up on the fact that this might be someone related to the child. She says, I'll pay you to take care of the child. And the child spends years with its own Hebrew family learning and growing, and then it gets moved over. Some people think at the age of nine, possibly, when they want to start training someone in the royal courts and the royal training. So he had possibly nine years with his parents as a Hebrew, and she would get to say, now this is Pharaoh's daughter's son adopted. And I put there's a caring adoption. But what happens is Moses reaches the age of around 40 and he decides, and we know this from Hebrews and we know this from part of the story in Acts as well, he decides not to be Egyptian and to associate with the nation of Israel. I put there's a deliverer born, but then when you get to 11 through 14, you see a deliverer fail. He's a deliverer, but he's going to make a colossal mistake. And for time, I won't read the verses, but what you're going to watch him do is he's going to commit murder to solve a problem. So an Egyptian is whipping a Hebrew. He murders the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. <clears throat> the next day or soon thereafter, the Egyptian that was getting beat is fighting with somebody else. Moses comes in to correct. So what are you going to do? Murder me like you murdered the Egyptian? And what you see, even from Stephen's account, when he talks about it, he was there to be a deliverer. In his mind, he's rescuing his people. He's concocting this plan. My guess is he's a charismatic guy. He can speak. He can fight. He's got all this going for him. And he comes in to solve things his way. And so he commits murder. He covers his action. And then he has to face the consequence of his actions. And what's the consequence? 15. Now, when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. He sat down by a well. And you might think, man, why is Pharaoh trying to kill Moses? It's adopted into the family. Yeah, Pharaoh's had a lot of kids, so there was no love lost between siblings. All right. So that's just one less person you got to deal with that might want the throne. So great opportunity to get rid of a brother. That's why you never see such brotherly affection taking place, it seems like, in the royal family. It seems like it's, it's not the best option. Uh, for life. But he's sent off and he's facing the consequence. He, he has to leave Egypt or be killed by Pharaoh. And so he heads to Midian and sits down at the well. And he says, a well or the well. If you're in town in the desert, the well is the well. I mean, no one has to explain where the well is, right? Because you're in the desert. So the well is the well, right? Everyone knows. Uh, if you ever get directions in Nicaragua, there's no street names, by the way. And so they give directions by this kind of thing. Go to the well and hang a left. Problem in Nicaragua is they'll tell you to go to some landmark that's no longer there, that used to be there, and they assume you'll know that it used to be there seven years ago. They put up a huge thing for Hugo Chavez, but they don't reference it by the Hugo Chavez rotunda. They say, you know, go to Plaza España. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. And finally, I'm like, they're like, no, it's where the big statue of Hugo Chavez is. Why don't you say that? That helped a lot more than you telling me a landmark that doesn't exist anymore. But that's how they do it in Nicaragua. This is this. When they say the well, everyone in that area knows exactly where he was sitting. The daughters of Ruel come, or Jethro, and they pull water. Bullies come in to run them off, which seems to be their MO. Moses steps up and defends them. What does that sound like to you? Who else got water for his future bride. It's not been that long. His name was changed to Israel. Yeah. <laughs> Jacob, right, he comes to the well and waters the sheep for Rachel. He's there. So some of the same story kind of repeats itself, which I think is neat. The kids, the daughters head home and the dad says, why are you home so quick? Which I find fascinating. He sends his seven daughters out every day knowing they're getting bullied. And it's like, ah, better you than me. You know, that's 
That's the logic of the day. And so they're like, well, this guy, this Egyptian helped us. And he says, why didn't you invite the Egyptian home? He comes home. Moses ends up marrying a daughter named Zipporah, which means warbler or worse, twitterer. It's the name of a small bird. Okay, so um, that's what they, that's the name. And they have a child. And it seems that we have, and I put a deliverer tabled, because look at this. And Moses, 21, was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses Zipporah, his daughter, and she bare him a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. And the two parts of his name mean stranger and strange land. It's tied together. And you see a deliverer that is now, quote unquote, tabled. Why? Because he tried to work in his timing and God has his own timing. And so things are coming together. Moses is getting needed training in the wilderness. Uh, What is he really needing to get trained out of him? Arrogance. Pride of self. Because when you see him later, he's almost obnoxiously humble and says, I can't do anything. And God even gets angry with him at some point and says, well, I'll send Aaron to talk for you. The guy that murdered somebody jumped in, the orator, the, the, the educated man who's fought and was a statesman and has all these ability to talk and move and write and everything else, <coughs> after 40 years in the wilderness, is saying, I can't even speak anymore. So his arrogance, his pride is broken in this 40 years. And imagine you go from royal society, high society, talk about food, you talk about entertainment, you talk about interaction, and now you're in the desert and you're living your life as a despised profession. Remember, he's herding what? Sheep and goats. What do Egyptians hate? Sheep and goat herders. They're the least of it. You see who God's going to bring to bear. Um, What's interesting, time marches on in Egypt as well. The Pharaoh dies But it says something, and it came to pass in process of time, 23, that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage and they cried and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage and God heard their groanings and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob and God looked upon the children of Israel and God had respect unto them. And I want you to realize something. Moses, the deliverer, trained in Egypt, is exiled for 40 years, and everything about who he is is stripped away. And then a new pharaoh comes on. Maybe something will change, right? We just elected a new, list it, right? New president, new governor, new mayor, new whatever, right? How many times have we hoped upon a government official to suddenly save us, right? And look, I'm all for good public officials. I'm all for people who are going to honor God and their decisions. I think we should be as believers involved in elections, but do not view any political governmental figure as your savior in any way, shape or form at all. And this new Pharaoh comes in and he doesn't change anything. He's the same. And what do you see stripped away? (coughs) The guy who thinks he can pull it off by himself, gone. New Pharaoh comes in, not going to solve your problems, Israel. You need a miraculous solution. And they cry to God. Now, I want to clarify a few words, and then we'll split up into prayer groups. When you read the word heard, it doesn't mean that God was deaf to them before. It signifies that he acknowledges and he's prepared to act on their behalf. Remember, when you hear the word remember, it actually means that God is, it's not that God, oh, yeah, that's right. I have a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and with you as well. It's not remembering as bringing to attention. It's remembering as in he's moving forward to act. So every time you hear that God hears and God remembers, it's telling you God is acting on their behalf. He's stepping in now. And so the situation is desperate, but we can see that God is working, but he works on his timetable, not on ours, as Moses aptly demonstrated. But God has not left Israel without his presence or thoughts. The time has come, the situation at hand has has reached the point in God's timetable where he is going to come in and do what is supernatural, what is miraculous. He is going to be who he is, and that is the Redeemer, and he's going to rescue his people. And we see that situation building. So as we move next week, it's going to be three, hopefully three, four, uh, maybe, maybe do a little bit more, maybe less, depending on time. But we're going to see Moses get called. We're going to see God announce who he is. I am. It's a verse that's quoted over and over again. 
but we're going to see God now enter the scene, bringing his deliverer to bear and work on the heart of a wicked king and on a wicked people to rescue and redeem his own. If we can't